You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I am the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. Uh, If you are newer in the last month or so, we probably haven't met because I've been in Australia for three weeks. And uh, so I just want to say, hi, my name's Josh. And I just want to say thank you to all of you who were praying for our family, our travels. We have three small children. And uh, I can say our plane trips went as good as they could have gone. So thank you uh, for that. But truly, it was a a really blessed time of renewal and refreshment being around uh, our family. Uh, Today, we are wrapping up really a lengthy teaching series on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, We'll be going through self-control, which is the final one in the list. And after, uh, on on our travels back, we made it you know, on all of our, our you know, two international uh, plane flights. Uh, we were in LAX, and it was very busy in the terminal. And our, our flight from LA to Boise just kept getting delayed. Have you ever been in that moment? I was like, I should be preaching on patience this week. <laughs> so I almost changed the topic. It's just a double portion of patience. But no, self-control. And uh, it is, I'm, I'm going to warn you, we're going to jump in, and it's going to be heavy. This is... You know, some, some of the, the virtues that we see in the fruit of the Spirit, love, kindness, goodness, like some of those, we like those, right? People in the world like those kinds of things. Self-control is one with a bite to it. I read an article on Christianity Today while I was on my trip, and here's the title of the article, Sexual Harassment Went Unchecked at Christianity Today, and that article is put out by Christianity Today, and it records, uh, it was recent, this article was only uh, posted, I think, a couple weeks ago, and it records how two department heads over the course of 12 years had dozens of sexual harassment complaints from female coworkers, and nothing was done by human resources, nothing was done by the executives that it was brought to their attention, and there is some tragic irony for an article like this to come out uh, about Christianity Today, if you're familiar with what that is, it's a, a Christian magazine founded by Billy Graham in the 1950s. Some of you are familiar with kind of Billy Graham's sexual ethic, that sort of thing. And it's been called the flagship, flagship magazine of American evangelicalism. Uh, in recent years, Christianity Today has been notorious for exposing similar stories for other Christian leaders. Uh, they have reported on leaders such as Bill Hybels of Willow Creek, Carl Lentz, Hillsong, New York, Ravi Zacharias of the International uh, Apologist. Uh, Christianity Today is the organization that put out the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, which charted to top three podcasts of any podcast, not just in Christianity, but in any podcast uh, that records the power abuses of Pastor Mark Driscoll. And then this week, they, they also reported on Brian Houston, the founder of Hillsong in Sydney, Australia, has issued a resignation letter also having to do with charges of sexual harassment. And I know that these are all real situations dealing with real people who have been hurt. And there's the tragedy there, but it's stories like these that cause people outside of the church 
to look at Christianity and instead of using words like the fruit of the Spirit to describe Christians, one of the top adjectives that people might use for Christians is hypocrite. It's hypocrite. I mean, when you have one of the top Christian magazines who is notorious for exposing those kinds of behaviors elsewhere is just within their own organization letting it slide for more than a decade. And we have to talk about this kind of stuff as Christians. I certainly need to wrestle with this stuff as a church leader. And I want to pose the question to you, what do all of those situations have in common? And I would say each one of those leaders lacked self-control. As you might be aware, it is possible to go to church and not grow the fruit of the Spirit. It's possible to be known as a Christian by name, but not actually follow Jesus in your life. It's possible even to serve in ministry or to work at a Christian organization like a magazine and even see the speck in other people's eyes while ignoring, according to Jesus, the log that is sticking out from your own life. And this is why self-control is such an essential. It's not, an, it's not like all the other fruit of the Spirit are essential and this one's optional. It is a vital fruit of the Spirit. The Greek word for self-control is enkrataia, and it means temperance, control, or restraint. It's a combination of two Greek words, en, which means in, that's easy to remember, right? En means in, and kratos, which means power or strength. And it's the idea that, you know, you can easily recognize someone who has outer strength, right? They can bench press a lot of pounds, right? Weights and sets and reps. Obviously, I don't spend much time in the gym, but <laughs> they could do all that stuff, like outer, you know, outer strength, but ankrataya is this inner strength, and it's specifically having power over yourself. Having power over the desires in your life. Simply put, self-control is the ability to say no when you want to say yes. It's the ability to say no to a desire that you have. And saying no to yourself is not viewed as a virtue in our world. Saying no to a desire is viewed as a threat. Do you realize that? John Mark Comer puts it like this in his book, Live No Lies, in this new religion of the self. He's just made the point that the new religion of the modern world is, is really, instead of God as God, yourself as the God, you define good and evil. You decide right and wrong. In this new religion of self, what our ancestors called chastity, and he's, he's describing that as a virtue, right? Chastity as a virtue is now called oppression if it's externally opposed from something like, I don't know, a church or the Bible, right? Or repression if it's internally opposed. Have you sensed this in culture? Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do, right? There's this popular cultural slogan, you do you, and that perfectly describes the, the, this atmosphere in which we live our lives. 
that if any kind of faith or religion or church or the Bible, any kind of external authority tells you, you can't do this. It's ultimately bad for you. It's going to lead to destruction. The world cries out, I'm being oppressed. Or if you are around a group of friends and you say, you know what, I actually, you know, I'm not going to have that third or fourth drink. Or you know what, I just made some decisions in my dating life and I'm not, I'm not going to sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Somebody would say to you, why? Why are you repressing your natural, animalistic behavior or desires? And yet, at a moment like this, we just have to pause and acknowledge what a world without self-control leads to. A life without self-control leads to sexual harassment when unchecked at Christianity today. A life without self-control leads to rape. It leads to murder. It leads to violence. It leads to drunkenness. It leads to lying and stealing and cheating. And I just want to pause and and maybe pose this question to you. Do you really want a world without self-control? I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of broadcast as that's the life, a life with the maximum amount of individual freedom that you can have, where you can literally create your own person. The self is the new religion. And yet a world like that does not actually lead to a utopia. It actually leads to something that looks a lot more like the movie The Purge. And I'm not, I haven't seen that movie, but it's basically, it, I don't want to see that movie because of it's basically a, a day without rules, right? And everyone does what they want. I want to ask you this question. Do you want to be a person? Do you really want to be a person that says yes to everything you want to do? And think about the consequences, not the immediate consequences, but the long-term consequences of the brokenness and the destruction that that would bring in your life. Proverbs 25, 28 says it like this, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Being able to say yes to every desire that you want, it actually leads to a life of insecurity. It leads to a life of danger and harm and destruction. We're going to be in Genesis 25 today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Genesis 25. I told you, it's got a, self-control has a bite to it, doesn't it? We're going to look at a story of self-control from Genesis 25. Let me set the scene for you. Genesis 25 centers around Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the child of promise from Abraham and Sarah. If you're familiar at all with the biblical story, uh, God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would, uh, he would be a father of many. He would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And by the end of Abraham's life, he didn't have many, many children. He only had a handful of children. And Isaac was one of those. Abraham and Sarah, they tried to take matters into their own hands when they kept getting older and they dealt with issues of infertility. And what happened was Sarah said, take my servant Hagar. And so he has this illegitimate child with one of uh, her servants. His name is Ishmael. And then eventually they followed God's plan and they, they had a child, and miraculously, God allowed Sarah to conceive in her old age, and Isaac is that child. Isaac is the child of promise. And yet, in Genesis 25, what we see is Isaac has married Rebekah, and they actually deal with the same issue that Abraham and Sarah dealt with, infertility. They've been married for 20 years, and they've tried to have children the entire time, 
and no children. And Isaac has been praying and praying and praying for his wife to be able to conceive. I mean, he's the child of promise. If they don't have kids, the covenant has ended, right? And so he's been praying, and then in a, in a same intervention of God, uh, God allows Rebecca to be able to conceive, and she's pregnant, but it's almost like she wished she wasn't pregnant because of how difficult the pregnancy is. I mean, she's pregnant, and it says it feels like there's a war going on in her womb. And she asks God, why is this happening to me? Have you ever asked God that question? We don't always get answers to that question why, but Rebecca actually gets an answer. How amazing is that? She inquires of the Lord. She asks, why is this happening to me? And this is what God says to Rebecca in Genesis 25, 23. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so there's this prophecy from God to Rebecca that she's having twins. Like, surprise, there's no ultrasounds, right? You're having twins. And, uh, and not only is she going to have twins, but each of these men will actually be fathers of two separate nations. And they're going to be in conflict with one another. I mean, you, if you think your kids have problems fighting, I'm at, like in the womb, they like hate each other already. And it doesn't get better once they are born. Once they're born, it actually gets worse. Uh, it comes time for Rebecca to give birth, and out comes Esau, and he's red and hairy, and literally clinging to his heel, like he was trying to get out first, is Jacob, his brother, his little brother by two seconds. And after they're born, Esau becomes this kind of man's man. He's out in the woods. He's hunting. He's fishing. He's doing all of that. And Isaac loves him for that because he likes beef jerky. And he's, you know, he loves Esau because Esau brings home all the meat. And Rebecca favors Jacob. And so to make matters worse, each parent kind of picks a kid and, you know, <laughs> you know you're my favorite. No, you're my favorite. And, and, and they just, they grow up with this just intense, deep sibling rivalry. All of that is to set up this one story that happens in Genesis 25. If you're there, you go ahead and look on with me in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted and Jacob said, or Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. The word Edom means red. So the red is stew. He was red when he was a baby. You get the idea. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. It's a steep charge. And Esau said, I'm about to die. I'm dying of hunger. Have you ever said that? Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, to make sure that this was a binding deal, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread. You know, he even threw the bread in there. You get to pick one side. <laughs> Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And he lived happily ever after? Look at this last sentence. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, in the ancient world, the birthright for the oldest child, for the oldest male, would actually be uh, a double portion. So at this point, there's two children, right? And I want you to just do a simple, like, economics 
calculation for me. What do you think is more valuable? 66% of all of Isaac and Rebecca's land and animals and clothing and money and servants and literally everything they own, 66% of that, or one bowl of soup? <laughs> it's pretty easy, right? It's pretty easy to even be critical of Esau. Have you ever eaten the soup? For us, there's this saying, the value of something, what something is worth, is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. And Esau paid for it. He paid to sell his birthright to his younger brother, functionally changing places with his younger brother, right? Here's the point for us. Don't let a desire derail your destiny. Don't let a desire that you have, maybe a fleeting desire, an appetite that you have, derail your destiny. And you might push back and say, well, was it Esau's destiny, you know, to, to, well, because God had already prophesied, right, the older will serve the younger, and we might, you know, play these kind of speculations. Well, you know, if it wasn't the soup, it probably would have been something else, right? Esau was always going to make that wrong decision. And yet for you and me, just think about this for a moment. Do you realize there is a destiny for you in Christ Jesus? In Ephesians 2, we are told that if you're in Christ Jesus, you were created for good works, which were, which were prepared for you in advance. Before you were even born, God created you, made you with gifts and abilities and passions and desires. God made you on purpose for a purpose, created so that you would walk in them, so that you would live for the kingdom. There's a destiny for you in Christ Jesus. And yet what we do so often is we allow a temporary desire for something that is sinful to derail that destiny, to not walk in the good works, to not live the life that God has called us to live. Craig Rochelle says it like this, don't make, a permanent, don't make permanent decisions based on temporary emotions. The decision that Esau made was permanent. We know that because Jacob said the words, swear to me now. He wasn't going to let him get away with it. He, he, essentially, Jacob's saying, no takesies backsies. But notice what happens. As soon as the soup is gone, I mean, he probably didn't regret the decision while he's eating the soup. He's like, man, he even gave me bread. Great deal. You know, he's eating it. He's eating the soup. He was like, I was so starving. This is great. And then he takes the final bite of soup, and he's staring down at an empty bowl, and it hits him like a ton of bricks. And from that day forth, he despised his birthright. It doesn't say he despised his brother. He despised his own decision to sell his birthright. Another way to say it, he lived the rest of his life with regret. In our lives, as soon as the one night stand is over, as soon as the bottle of alcohol is empty, as soon as the high wears off, as soon as the rage subsides, you get the idea? As soon as the appetite the desire, the inclination to do something sinful is fulfilled, it hits us like a ton of bricks. Maybe Adam and Eve enjoyed the fruit while they were eating it, and it had a bitter aftertaste of guilt 
and shame. So what are we going to do? Are we going to let desire rule us? Are we going to give in to whatever the heart wants? Here's what we do. Say no. That's what self-control is. Say no so you can say a better yes. I think there's two compelling reasons why we should live a life of self-control and allow the Holy Spirit to grow us in this way. The first one is to think, to, to think about the consequences of saying yes to sin. Ultimately, that it's unhelpful, it's destructive, it hurts us, it hurts the people around us, it has that bitter aftertaste, we don't want to live with regret, there's the negative stuff, right? But then there's a positive side. Imagine if Esau had simply considered the value of his birthright. Imagine if he thought about the better yes that he would be saying yes to instead of the no. This is such a delicious bowl of soup, right? Think of the better yes. For everything that we say no to, God has a better yes for you. And even in the calling to follow Jesus, Jesus did not try and pull some bait and switch on us. He he, he didn't try and say, you want to go to heaven? You want to get your sins forgiven? Say yes to me. Oh, and by the way, your life is now mine, right? He, He didn't do a bait and switch. This is what Jesus said up front to people who were seeking to come after him. He said, deny who? Yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's like... That's as upfront as you can get. You're going to have to say no to yourself if you want to follow Jesus. You're going to have to take up your cross. A cross is not comfortable. A cross is a place where you die, where you die to yourself. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 5, this is the, the verse immediately following the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and Self-control, it ends with self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And then the very next verse, in verse 24, is, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We don't just grow the fruit of the Spirit by, by it, automatically. We have to crucify the passions and the desires of the flesh. So what are we going to do? We're going to say no. You're going to say no to yourself a lot. You're going to say the better yes that God has called you to say yes to. And we're going to choose the delayed gratification over the instant gratification. Here's the beautiful thing about appetites. Jerry Seinfeld has this comedy bit about appetites. He was like, when I was a kid, my mom always told me, don't ruin your appetite. He's like, here's the thing I learned as an adult. You always got another appetite. I'll ruin as many as I want. They're cut, you know. Anyway, that's Jerry Seinfeld. But what we, have to, what we have to realize about your desires, about your appetites, is they are truly fleeting. They come and they go. There's always another desire that you might have around the corner. And so are you going to let those temporary things rule your life? Or are you going to choose the eternal? Are you going to choose the kingdom over the worldly. Got four practices for you to help us in this. Practice number one is start with your speech. What we say, we can say what we post online, your Twitter account, is one of the areas that we need self-control the most. In my 10th grade English class, I had 
an English teacher, and I was a good student, so don't get me wrong. I was, a, I was a good student, got good grades, but sometimes I was a loud student, if that makes sense, like interrupting, making a funny comment here, that sort of thing, and my English teacher was no nonsense. And from day one, very first class period, she said, Josh, get a filter. <laughs> and like every day, every subsequent day, she would say that to me. So, and it, a filter is just this idea of you don't have to say everything that you think you should say. That's what she was saying to me. Get a filter. And when I read social media, what I want to say is Christians, get a filter. You don't have to say everything that you think you should say. Your speech, what comes out of your mouth. Jesus said, it's not what goes into your mouth, what you eat or drink that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth. Because from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Think about James, the brother of Jesus. Speaking of of speech and self-control, he says this, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is a perfect man. So if you always get your speech right, then you're probably perfect. Able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. This is why I would say start with your speech. Start with your speech. If out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, then what you say is actually a reflection of what is in your heart of what your deepest thoughts and feelings actually are. And if you just learn to have a filter, learn to not say something that you think will win that debate online or or will make you look good, we need to learn to be silent. Here's the beautiful thing about silence. Here's here's, Here's like a pro tip for you. If you just don't say anything, people will think you're really smart. Did you know that? If you say the wrong thing, they'll think you're really foolish. And so if you want to be smart, just use self-control and just don't, don't say anything. Don't interject. Don't feel like you need to win that argument. Not only is silence a way that we use self-control in our speech, but it's also redirecting our speech from destructive purposes. James goes on to say in James chapter 3 that the tongue is like a wildfire. Think how many forest fires are started over speeches, that are started over the words that people say. But what if we, instead of using the destructive power of your tongue, what if you learn to use the positive, the building up power? What if you used your speech to build up, that it might give grace to those who hear? There's that line from Bambi, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. I would would say when it comes to what we say in in Scripture, the Bible takes it one step further. Instead of if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. I would say if you don't have something nice to say, think of something nice to say. (laughs) And just use your speech to speak words of truth, to edify, and to build up people around you. And as you get a rain, like a horse, like a wild animal, as you get a rain on on your speech... What you're going to notice is you actually have self-control in other areas of your life as well. Start with speech. Practice number one. Practice two is fight sexual immorality. I would say if there are two areas, and there's a lot of areas that self-control comes in handy in our lives following Jesus. But as I look out across the landscape of 
uh, our church, our country, Christianity as a whole, two main areas come to mind. One is what people are saying, and the other one is sexuality. A world that lives by the slogan, if it feels good, do it, naturally lends itself to sexually immoral practices. And I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 12, and the author of Hebrews actually is talking about our story today, Jacob and Esau, the soup, that whole situation, but likens it to sexual immorality. Look at what it says, Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like who? Like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So is every, he's always going to be remembered for that, by the way. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's like the deepest kind of regret that you can live with for the rest of your life. Now, we have no reason to believe, when you read Genesis 25 that Esau was a sexually immoral man, right? We know that he gave in, you know, ate the soup, that whole thing. And yet, I think there's a reason why the author of Hebrews is using the situation with Esau to describe sexual immorality in the church. That's because both are physical desires that people have. Both are desires that are not inherently evil. Did you realize that? Desire for food, sexual drive are actually both given by God. He created human beings with those desires. And yet both of those desires, when you see them fulfilled in ways that God does not see fit, lead to disaster. And so for sexuality, God's design for sexuality is for fulfillment in a covenant relationship, a marriage between a man and a woman. And anything outside of that that we do is considered sexual immorality. And if you think, I'm being harsh about this. I just want to remind you Jesus' central teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on sexual immorality. Here's what Jesus had to say, right? He didn't try and loosen kingdom ethics to be a little bit more inclusive of more people. or tried, He didn't try to you know, be not so offensive about you know, blurring the lines or anything like that. This is what Jesus said. If your eye is the problem, referring to your sexuality, gouge it out. If your hand is the problem, chop it off. It would be better for you to chop off one part of your body than for the rest of your body to be thrown into hell. You cannot be more offensive than Jesus. That's his sexual ethic. And he said, and if you think it's just the outward acts of this stuff that's the problem, in that same passage, he said it's not only the the physical act of adultery, but even looking at a man or a woman with lust in your heart. So what does that teach us about self-control and the sexual ethic that we find in the kingdom of heaven? It means we have to get serious about your fight against sexual immorality. I guarantee you none of those news stories, right, we started with, those prominent Christian leaders who had these great scandals that took place and went over national news, I guarantee you none of them started off in ministry thinking they would end up there. That was not their goal destination. This is every day, every decision at a time. Every time you log in and watch pornography. This is every time you have that that lustful thought. So what does it look like to get serious? Download accountability software on your computer or your phone. Pay for it if you have to. 
get the good software, delete certain apps, block contacts, block his or her phone number, break up with a toxic relationship. If you are uh, living with your boyfriend or girlfriend and sleeping with them, you need to get married or get an apartment of your own. And if those sound serious, they are serious. Maybe a little less serious than chopping off your hand. And the point Jesus was making was not to literally chop off your hand. What he's saying is we have to get serious about this. How are we going to reach a world as a church if we look exactly like the world? What do we even have to offer? We have to live a holy, a counter-cultural life. Can you tell I haven't preached in three weeks? Come on. (laughs) Practice number three, try fasting. I'd say this is maybe a lost spiritual discipline for many American Christians today. Uh, Fasting is is very uncommon, but I would say this as well. Self-control is also very uncommon when it comes to characteristics found in American Christians. Maybe there's a correlation. I'm not sure. But here's what I do know. Fasting, which is simply abstaining from food to say yes to God, spend more time with God, to be devoted to him. Uh, Fasting is the best spiritual discipline for targeting self-control, for growing in self-control. Because what you're doing is you're essentially reversing the decision of Esau. You're saying no to food. And there's nothing actually even sinful about what Esau did, right? It was very foolish. But you're saying no to a healthy, normal, physical desire to gain mastery over your appetites so that when you encounter a sinful desire... There's some, you see that, the translation, the correlation there? You might have power, enkratia, right? You might have power over those sinful desires as well. Uh, I wrote a blog post on uh, my website, joshuabranham.com. I have a blog kind of on the side. It's called Five Reasons You Should Try Fasting. Posted it a few weeks ago. And just as anecdotal evidence that, that Americans don't want to fast is this was my, one of my least viewed blog posts I've ever posted. <laughs> And I'm not saying that so that you would read this post, I promise. But you should read it, though. I think for many people, they read even a title, like five reasons why you should try, try fasting, and they look at the burger, and they think, maybe not. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't try fasting. The Corinthian church had a problem where their, their God was their belly. That's another way of saying that our gods are our appetites the desires that we let rule us. So here's what I would say to you. It's a few weeks till Easter, classically known as the Lent season, which is literally just a season of fasting. And if you've never fasted before, try it. Read that article. Like one reason is to grow self-control. Like read five more reasons if you need them. And all it is is just instead of eating food, you just drink water. No coffee even, right? Instead of eating food, you just drink water. Maybe pick one day a week this week, one meal, skip the meal, and instead of eating, spend that time with God. Spend that time in prayer, in Bible reading. You could even spend that, spend that time in just silence. Sitting, maybe if you get a lunch break at work, use your lunch break to actually spend that time with God instead of eating. And watch how God grows self-control. It's not gonna happen one-time fasting. It's, it's, it's a thing that grows in us. That's our, our third practice. Last practice is add structure to support growth. 
This is a principle that we understand in other areas of our lives. If you want to control your spending, it is almost impossible to control your spending unless you have a budget. Dave Ramsey, okay. Unless you have a budget. Because otherwise, what happens is every single purchase that you make, you have to exercise willpower in that moment. Does that make sense? And you have to, in, case by case, individual transactions, be like, do I have enough money? Do I not? Do I need to check my bank account? But if you have a budget, a.k.a. structure, to decide what you will spend your money on, you have to exercise way less willpower. Your willpower goes into making the budget, and then after you've made it, it goes into sticking to it. So the, the budget is your structure, and all the willpower you need is to tie your life to that structure. Say, I already, I already agreed to this. I already said I would do it. I'm going to do it. If you want help eating and eating right, instead of every single meal trying to figure out, is this healthy, is this unhealthy, whatever, you need to follow a diet. If you want to become a great athlete, you need a training plan. Does this make sense? We understand this principle. If you want to grow spiritually, it will not happen without structure. Something to tie your life to. To not just wake up Monday morning and say, I hope the Holy Spirit grows fruit in me this week. Man, I really hope he does. But to wake up on Monday morning and say, when are you reading the Bible? And what are you reading? When are you praying today? Are you doing a Sabbath this week? Are you gonna listen to Josh and try fasting for one meal? Are you going to church next Sunday? Or is that a Sunday morning at 10.59 decision? Right? You, does that make sense? The structure is referred to this term, we've talked about it before, as a rule of life. A rule of life might sound intimidating because people don't like rules, but all a rule of life is, it's a written out agreement with yourself. And you can edit it. That's the nice thing is you wrote it, you can edit it at any time. And it's just a written out set of schedules and practices this is what I want to read. I want to read a chapter a day in the Bible. I want to, I want to pray first thing in the morning and last thing before I go to bed. I want to, do, I want to do the Sabbath from 6 p.m. on Friday to 6 p.m. on Saturday, right? It's an, a written out agreement with yourself so that when you wake up Monday morning, you're not flying by the seat of your pants and trying to figure out what you're doing. It's structure that supports growth. Just like a tomato plant will only grow so large unless it has structure, a vine will only grow if it has a trellis. John Mark Comer put it like this. Willpower is at its best when it does what it can. So what can willpower do or self-control do? Direct my body into spiritual practices so that the spirit's power can do what willpower can't overcome the three enemies of your soul. Do you realize you can't grow love? by yourself? You can't just, you can't just use self-control to be like, oh, I'm going to be more loving. You can't do that with patience. You can't do that with peace. You can't just try harder to do that. But what you can do is you can do what willpower can, make a decision to spend time with Jesus, make a decision consistently to follow a set of spiritual disciplines, and over time, disciplines will lead to new desires. And what takes every ounce of your willpower today to not look at pornography or to not you know, have that third, fourth, fifth drink, to, to not you know, text that person late at night, right? What takes every ounce of willpower today? Spiritual disciplines. Given enough time, we've said this before, not just overnight, given enough time, will grow new desires. Five years from now, where will those spiritual disciplines take you? 
10 years from now. One day, you might look at something that has total power and control over you, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what it means to walk by the Holy Spirit every single day, to connect to the vine of Jesus Christ. What will happen is one day, you will have a new desires that grow, and something that seems overwhelmingly difficult to say no to, you may not even crave one day. That's the power that self-control has to connect you back to the power of the Holy Spirit. Here at the end, what I want to remind us is this idea of self-control. I know it's a lot of talk about self-mastery. Almost sounds like a Jedi type thing, right? Uh, But the reality is self-control really has to do with Christ control. It doesn't just have to do with being a stronger person internally and having more mastery and all this sort of stuff. Really what it has to do with give, is giving more of your life over to Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ, everyone say it, controls us. The word control is not necessarily a word many of us would use to describe love, is it? But it's actually the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, or we could say for their desires, letting their desires rule them, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And that's really the good news of the gospel, which motivates us which changes and transforms our lives. And it's not just that the love of God forgives us from our sins. The love of God controls us. That means that Jesus is the son of God and he died on the cross for your sins and for mine. Think about the the self-control that Jesus exercised when he's hanging on the cross, being ridiculed by one of the thieves, being ridiculed by the soldiers, right? Suffering for the sins of the world. The self-control not to call the angels down and to get him to a place of comfort. And he experienced that and died for our sake and was raised back to life so that we could be raised into a new life in him. So would we walk in that new life? Would we say that Jesus is not just my savior, he is my Lord. I have given control of my life to him. And the good news of the gospel is today, if you've never responded to the good news of the gospel, you can give control of your life to Jesus. You can be Christ-controlled today. You can pray and ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life. And if that's you and you've never been baptized, I would encourage you to take that step of baptism. You can go to hillcityboise.org slash baptism. You can find out more. You can sign up on there and you can experience what it truly means to walk in the newness of life. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son to this world to show us how to live and then to die on our behalf. God, thank you for the power of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in our lives, and we just want to be people who are controlled by your love. Would we walk by your Holy Spirit and would you grow your fruit in our souls? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.